The richer you get, the harder it is to manage your estate. There's lots of moving parts like portfolio diversity, tax mitigation, asset protection, and estate planning. That's why the ultra wealthy use family offices, and that's where Valerity Wealth comes in for you. Run by a former sovereign wealth fund manager, Valerity Wealth brings institutional level expertise to the high paid professional. Let Valerity quarterback your finances. Book your free consultation at ValerityWealth.com. Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com, accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. So before I begin, I want to remind you that you can go to wealthformula.com and get a copy of my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, as a free download. Now, this was a book that I had released some time ago, and it actually became an Amazon international bestseller. It's still on Amazon. You can pay me for it if you want, or you can just go to wealthformula.com and download the PDF. And the other thing I would suggest you do is email that out to a bunch of people who you think really need to get this kind of information, who are out there investing all of their hard-earned money in an overly inflated stock market. So you're going to save them a lot of money and maybe even save them from dying broke. So that's Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. Now, there's also the Weekly Wealth Widget, which I think some of you are enjoying some of it's basic, some of it you're going to learn, but essentially I send out a weekly little bit of informational or educational piece that might have some kind of topic that has a little bit of terminology. Maybe it's about what is passive income or what is cap rates or what are you know things like that that you hear on the show all the time that we're not going to wait and define. Uh, we're just going to use them. So if some of this is new to you, make sure you actually go and subscribe to Weekly Wealth Widget and you'll build up that financial IQ slowly but surely. Now, as far as today's show goes, everyone grows up with some kind of belief system. And ultimately, that is an amalgam of religion, culture, and life circumstances. And these beliefs influence how we see the world and how we behave within it. Make no mistake, belief systems have a lot to do with how successful or not successful you are in your life as well. Now, listen, my situation, I'm the child of Indian American immigrants. And my dad, like many men who immigrated to the U.S. from India in the 1960s, he was an educated engineer. He was a highly educated engineer and came here for a scholarship to the University of Minnesota. But unlike most of his cohort, he quickly recognized the opportunity in this great country of ours. And instead of buying a house to live in, my parents bought a duplex. My dad realized that if he bought a duplex instead of a house, the tenants would pay his mortgage for him. 
seemed like a no-brainer for this young immigrant couple, right? Well, that was an inflection point for him because he saw opportunity in owning rental properties for cash flow instead of trading time for money. And when he saw that, he was off to the races. He never asked the question, shouldn't I be investing for the long run in a portfolio of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds for the long run? Why? Because that really wasn't part of his experience. I mean, he came from a place where people were just hustling to put food on the table. He was a poor guy in India, and that's really poor. He had no preconceived idea about what to do with his money because he never had any and neither did his parents. So he did what he thought made sense. He bought cash flowing assets and almost 50 years later, he's still at it. Now, I must say that those of you who have read my book know that my dad did have a lapse of judgment during the tech bubble. And of course, you can read all about it. And really, that's the only time he really lost a lot of money. He's been a real estate guy for my entire life. So far, you can sort of get a sense of my influences growing up, right? I mean, first of all, I look different. I was the only child with melanin in a sea of Scandinavian grade school children. I'm a tall guy, right? I'm 6'4", and I was already almost fully grown by the time I was in eighth grade. I mean, so I was totally standing up. My mom, when I was in kindergarten and first grade, she packed me a chicken curry sandwich for lunch instead of peanut butter and jelly. And my dad was a thriving slumlord. I mean, a scrappy real estate investor, of course. And unlike the other Indian kids, my dad didn't seem to care about how I did in school. And that was a little unusual, too. In fact, neither of my parents paid much attention. It was rare that they ever saw my report card. The only thing that drove me to do well in school was the fact that everyone told me that my big brother was really smart and I wanted to be just like him. The other thing is that most Indian parents want their kids to be doctors. I mean, that's why there's so many darn Indian doctors. In Indian culture, the pecking order of families has more to do with the number of doctors in your family than anything else. My mom really wanted my brother to be a doctor. Why? Well, she just really liked doctors, and she told me that she really wished that she'd married one. And when my brother decided not to go that way, she was crushed. And one of the reasons for that is that she didn't expect me to head in that direction at all. You know, I fancied myself a man of letters, and when I was leaving for my fancy Ivy League college, my mom asked me what I was going to study, and I told her, I don't know, Mom, but I guarantee you I won't be a doctor. So, she was, of course, overjoyed when two years later I declared my own intent to apply to medical school. But not my dad. He couldn't figure out why I wanted to be a doctor. A lot of work. A lot of time. You know, I make more money than all those doctors, don't you? He asked. Of course, I blew him off. I mean, he just didn't get it. I was following a mission. You know, I wanted to help people. It wasn't about making money. You see, he grew up dirt poor and fed his family since grade school, tutoring rich kids in mathematics. That was his perspective. He had raised an affluent private school kid, me, and I had the luxury of being an idealist. Well, eventually I went on, as you know, to become an entrepreneur just like him. As they say, the apple does not fall from the tree. And when I started making money, I had to figure out what to do. And the thing that really didn't cross my mind was I should invest my money in a portfolio of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Most of my colleagues ended up handing their money over to a financial planner. Not surprising, right? But that was not part of my experience. So it seemed, believe it or not, risky. So I started investing in real estate. Why? Because my experience told me that if I invested in real estate, it would make me wealthy like my dad. 
I also saw that his only venture into the stock market during the dot-com bubble almost destroyed him. And finally, it was 2009, and I had the perspective of making money for the first time while witnessing the carnage of the equity markets. In sum, I got lucky, folks. I had a different perspective from the rest of the highly educated herd that I was a part of, and I was able to see a better way, and that, my friends, has made me wealthy. Now, my guest today on Wealth Formula Podcast is an immigrant himself, and obviously that has led to a different perspective. And when we come back, we're going to hear all about it. MC Lobsher, the cash flow ninja. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is MC Lobsher. Many of you probably listen to a show already known to you as the cash flow ninja. MC describes himself as a wealth strategist, educator, and a financial freedom fighter. That sounds very inspirational there, MC. That's cool. His mission is to help as many people as possible eliminate the control of banks and financial institutions and the control that these banks have on their lives by building their wealth in a variety of ways outside of Wall Street. MC challenges existing societal belief systems and information around concepts such as money, saving, investing, wealth, and retirement. Sounds very familiar, MC. It sounds very similar to uh, my ethos. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor to be on your show. Great. My guess is that probably a number of people listen to your show, but for those of us who don't know you as well, why don't you give us a little bit of background on where you're coming from? Obviously, you're, you don't have a Midwestern accent or anything like that, so... <laughs> no, originally from South Africa. I actually grew up in South Africa. Grew up in a very interesting time in the country's history. I was uh, still in primary school when Nelson Mandela was released. I was in high school when uh, South Africa became the first democratically elected president of the country. So it was quite a very interesting time to live through that. And I frequently think back of everything that happened in such a small space of time. So learned a lot from it. I got my schooling in South Africa. Afterwards, I traveled a little bit, jumped on a plane. I ended up in the United States with a backpack, a suitcase, about $500, a sense of humor and a sense of adventure. And I ended up playing in a city-based national rugby league that they had at the time. I played all over the United States, ended up playing representative rugby for the United States. But while I was actually pursuing a career in sports, I came across this little purple book that some of your listeners might be uh -huh. familiar with yeah, <laughs> called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And that's kind of where I went down the, the rabbit hole. I kind of uh, started reading up on that. I went to a pretty prestigious school in South Africa, so I was very fortunate to have access to families that generated and created in both enormous wealth for themselves and generational wealth for generations afterwards. So I kind of had an insight to what these families, how they raised their children, what they were thinking and so forth. So when I came across that book, it was it really started to open my mind, especially on the mindset side of it. I purchased my first investment property my first year out of university. And actually, when I landed in Chicago, not too far from where you're at, I uh, fell into a situation through uh, a network and the rugby network where I kind of had an accidental mentor <laughs> because yeah. truth be told, I wasn't smart enough or didn't have the knowledge at that time to figure out that that's what I needed in the real estate environment. Sure. So I learned the business from the ground up. It was a very, very wealthy private real estate investor that bought large multifamily unit buildings in the north side of Chicago. 
And I learned the business basically from doing maintenance, landscaping, painting apartments, doing some property management for him to eventually working inside the office, doing uh, bookkeeping, doing leasing, marketing, tenant screening, lease negotiations, managing a very big part of his portfolio as a property manager and to eventually also getting my broker's license, coming on his acquisitions team. So I kind of learned exactly how these guys buy and sell buildings, what they're looking for, and the game from the inside and also having access to, of course, this private investor was very eye-opening at such a young age to sure. understand that there's truly, as Robert Kiyosaki wrote in that book, rules for the rich, the middle class, and the poor. Yeah. So yeah, I spent some time in the real estate as an investor, still invest in, in real estate. And as you mentioned, I have a wealth management firm that I built, started two and a half years ago, where I teach strategies for individuals, families, entrepreneurs, investors, and small business owners to build their wealth outside of Wall Street. And I also have the Cash Flow Ninja podcast, as you've mentioned, where we talk about cash flow and generating cash flow from all asset classes, real estate, businesses, commodities, how to cash flow gold and silver, for instance, is a popular one. Buying turnkey agricultural farms, not only in the United States, but in places like Panama and Belize. And then also looking at digital assets such as Bitcoin and businesses focused and based on the blockchain technology. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, your background is pretty unique. And I've been uh, thinking a lot lately about this idea of how people come to their own paradigms in investing in wealth. As you mentioned, you have a very unique perspective on the world in that, you know, you ultimately, you know, I guess you would say you lived through revolution in a way. You lived in a time where there was significant turmoil. You came to this country as an immigrant. How do you think that that background served you with your perspective and paradigm on wealth and investing today? I think it's not only has it made me the person that I am today, but also the way that I approach wealth and critically evaluate everything. I think at such a young age to be exposed to what you can't really describe as other than extreme propaganda living in an apartheid state to eventually learn. <laughs> it's kind of the rug being pulled from underneath your feet, right? Where everything you was told was true and everything in society, this, this society that you lived in, eventually gets exposed for what it is. And you realize at a young age that there are <laughs> many different things out there that are not as presented. So you learn to critically think for yourself. I think I went to it through a phase where I was a little bit angry at first when you saw everything that was going on and what you were told growing up and a lot of the institutions. And then as you saw it slowly unraveling and questioning it and also then realizing what really happened and what was really going on. So I think from that aspect, it really brings me to challenge all assumptions constantly critically think for myself analyze read all the different sides of the of a specific topic or a story and try to form my own opinion about it and wealth management and trying to build and create wealth is the same way 
I'm just not going to take something as face value because I know there are many different parties involved yeah. um, in each transaction. And from a mindset of abundance, truly, I'd like to know how everybody is creating value in the transaction. I like to know how everybody is benefiting from it in the transaction because there's nothing wrong with everybody benefiting from it. That's actually the goal, right? Of, of right. building and creating wealth that all the parties involved in uh, exchange and of value receives equal value. So it truly has led me to just critically evaluate things, challenging existing assumptions. I think a lot of people, and this is not only as, you know, in, in countries where there is turmoil and there has been suppressive uh, oppressive regimes, but people just continue to say the same things over and over because generations before them said that. Right. And right. they don't really question why they're saying it or just evaluate if there's any basis or facts around what they're sure, repeating. Sure. In terms of in South Africa at the time and in, in terms of purely investing, obviously there's a whole political ideology behind it. But in terms of investing, did you have the same kind of standard 401k? I mean, this is what you're supposed to do. And ultimately, you know, discovered that maybe that that was something that may have been planted by the banks or the government rather than, uh, you know, common sense or what's the system there? Did you have the same kind of challenges that somebody growing up here would be with regard to, you know, trying to get out of this idea that the only way to invest is stocks, bonds and mutual funds, that sort of thing? Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And that is <laughs> in many respects from from people that I've spoken to over the world global. It's that mentality of going to work uh, or go to school, get good grades, go to the university, get a good degree because you need to find an employer that you're going to work your whole life for and save in their qualified retirement plan or their pension plans and their company stock diversify your portfolio with stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. And, you know, in 30 or 40 years, when you're going to retire, there'll be a mountain of money waiting for you if you just do all those things, right? Buy a house right away. A home is such a good investment, always goes up in value. So the same kind of stuff was told there. I, you know, I'll share the story. It's, it's kind of interesting when you think back about your childhood, but there are slight differences in South Africa. And this might have changed over the last couple of years. But growing up, we didn't have something like the FDIC. So you really have to watch what banks were doing, right? If they were mm -hmm. responsible, if they were good custodians of your money. And I just remember one day, I believe it was my grandmother and grandfather, they had money in a bank, for instance, and it just, they woke up the next morning and the bank that a large part of their savings was in was gone. Yeah. They were bankrupt. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, they just know, oh, well, you know, deposits up until a certain amount, you know, here it's what, $250,000 is covered, that type of thing. No, it's gone. So I think those experiences too makes you really keep an eye on things and look at things where I think, you know, to come back to your question, the system there is still, people are, are a little bit more alert because of stuff like this, mm -hmm. where I think even in the United States, because of the safety nets, like the one that I just described, for instance, the example was the FDIC, people don't really watch what banks are doing because they figure that they're covered, you know, and then you read about what's happening in other parts of the world, like Cyprus and Greece and, and so forth. And people don't think that things can't happen where they're living at. Well, you know what? When people grew up in South Africa, I can guarantee you this, being in conversations at that stage, 
everybody thought, you know, a vast majority of the population, obviously there's people that saw all of this coming, but the majority of the population just thought that things were going to go on as is. Um, and there wasn't really going to be um, rapid turmoil and rapid change in their lifetime. So from a wealth planning perspective too, you have to position yourself through risk management strategies to embrace whatever is coming next. I think this is a really good point because if you think about the generational differences in terms of how people in this country see money, those people, of course, most of them are dying out now, but who lived through the Great Depression and had exposure to that period in American history, they definitely saw money differently. They saw debt differently. They saw their level of trust in various things was significantly different than today because most people who are out there today, whether you're, you know, the most part of baby boomer, Gen X, or even millennial, you really have not had that kind of exposure to any kind of real malfunction in the system. I mean, certainly there was a malfunction in the system in 2008, but everybody, as you aptly described it, was protected by some kind of safety net. Now, that doesn't mean your money didn't evaporate in the markets, but if you had money in in the bank, uh, you know, your money still stayed in the bank. And one thing to point out, I mean, I think it's appropriate timing wise, is that one thing to consider is that one major rule that was changed since the 2008, 2009 is that now the banks are allowed to do not just bailouts, of course. I mean, that's the way it normally works where, you know, the Fed comes in and, and the next thing you know, you're, they're bailing out these banks on taxpayer dime. But a, a major change that has occurred is that the new law is that they allow for bail ins. So if you have money over $250,000 in a bank account in the U.S. right now, beware because there's a new regulation since the last meltdown that will allow banks to take your money and mandate them to take your money before they take money from the taxpayer. So that's just an aside. Let's get back to you, MC. You've addressed it a little bit already, but you talk a lot about the myths about wealth creation and you know the paradigms that are around. What else are we missing? Yeah, I think I touched on the big one is the accumulation approach towards the cash flow. Right. And I see this daily in my practice where, let me put it this way, financial institutions, they operate on a couple of sets of principles. The first principle is they want your money. (laughs) Yeah. They want to keep it for as long as possible. And when they give it back to you eventually, they want to give it back to you as slowly as possible. So with that principle in mind, the whole financial planning and also the conventional approach to retirement is based on the system where we're giving our money to financial advisors or we're giving our money to Wall Street through uh, qualified retirement plans. It's accumulating in there. We don't really have to invest in our own education. We're really not empowered at all. And hopefully 30 to 40 years from now, there's going to be a mountain of money waiting for us. And we're going to live just like those folks in all of the retirement advertisements paid by Wall Street. And the system has failed the majority of people. The math doesn't add up. The people that are positioned and that I that I do come across that I look at myself and say, wow, they're really well positioned to enjoy their golden years and live out the final years that they have are people that invested for cash flow. They invested in cash flowing businesses. They invested in cash flow real estate and other investments. You know, there's a lot of things happening, right? We're living longer. <laughs> Medical technology is advancing. I mean, that's right in your wheelhouse right there. 
So there's a lot of different factors that play into what's going to happen the next 20 to 30 years. And folks that were focused and followed the accumulation approach are going to find themselves that, number one, they don't have enough money to retire. And that's a very large segment of the 76 million baby boomers. And then there's also many of them that thought that they could still pull it off. They're going to outlive their money. So the baby boomers and the folks that focused on cash flow they're going to be set up because they're getting income streams monthly from their investments instead of drawing it down. And the other thing is about these qualified retirement plans, and people don't really want to talk about it, but it's been around since the 80s. You know, Ted Benner had his first 401k plan structured in the 1980s. So this has never really been truly tested with such a large portion of and segment of a population in many countries across the world are going to try and retire, use this to retire from. So that is a very big one. The other one is, and you'll hear people say this over and over, is compound interest. Compound interest. You know, you get these quotes from Einstein (laughs) saying it's what, how many wonder of the world, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, compound interest is extremely powerful. It is extremely powerful and a very, very good wealth building strategy. The problem is when you have fees and taxes compounding with your money. That's the big problem in it. There's been studies done just looking at how fees truly eat up the majority of your money in these plans with compound interest. So those ties into the wealth destroying factors. And then of course, you know, your house is an asset. Robert Kiyosaki was almost crucified basically, you know, saying this before the lost housing and financial crisis by the financial media and, you know, the financial pundits. And a lot of people did find out that that truly wasn't an asset when they didn't see the value of their house go up every single year. So those are just three quick ones that just uh, is top of mind. Yeah. Those are the wealth destroyers. Well, the wealth destroyers, the biggest one is taxes. Right. And this is what the wealthiest families do. The wealthiest families know the wealth destroyers. They understand that they have to limit and reduce the impact of taxes, not only by building and creating wealth, but also transferring wealth to the next generation, because that is one of the biggest destroyers when money, and we have a very, very large wealth transfer that's going to happen in the next 15 years. When money moves from one generation out to another one, taxes is your number one enemy. The other one, of course, is inflation. Inflation is your money just the purchasing power depreciating every single year. So we have the Federal Reserve chairman telling you that their goal is 2% per year. So they're telling you that they're trying to destroy the value of your purchasing power 2% per year. And then, of course, other wealth destroyers that out there, as I mentioned, fees is an enormous one. So you have to limit and reduce the impact of fees in this in, in structuring a very, very solid wealth plan. So let's talk a little bit more in depth on how to avoid the wealth destroyers, focusing in on the specific idea of cash flow, which obviously, you know, from for this show is a concept we hit on ad nauseum. So that won't be new, but let's focus in on, you know, how you, you know, specifically will look at a client. Say I come into Valhalla and I say, hey, uh, MC, help me build wealth. What are we going to do? Yeah, the first thing is we have to look at what's the most powerful system out there. It's the banking system. 
but uh, <laughs> there's not yeah. a lot of systems coming close to that. They have the biggest buildings. They make enormous money. So we have to look at the principles that they implement and execute within the system. And when you look at the banking system, there's two sides of that system. And this is a very basic explanation of it, but I think the principles are powerful. The one side is a deposit side of it, the place where people deposit money in. And we used to get a good interest rate on the money. They're basically paying nothing. Now, there are still conveniences of having a checking account, for instance, at at the bank. You know, there's online banking, bill pay, and so forth. So the one side is the deposit side. The other side is the lending side, the lending operations. And this is a very, very powerful side. So banks do not get really rich about people when people deposit money into them banks make a lot of money lending money to other people and when you combine the two within their own system it's really truly powerful so if you think about an example if you deposit ten thousand dollars in the bank and the bank pays you i'm just going to use round numbers say one percent just to have that ten thousand dollars in the bank on the deposit side the bank is paying you a hundred dollars to have that $10,000 in the bank. But there's also a lending side, right? So for round numbers, let's say the bank lends that out at 10%, that $10,000. Well, they're making $1,000 on that $10,000. Now, a lot of people would say, well, this is a pretty cool system. You know, the bank through arbitrage is making about 9% on that. That's great. And they don't really dig deeper. But if you truly look at the fundamentals and the principles, the amount of money that the bank had in this transaction was only $100. That was the only amount of money that they had in that. The $10,000 came from the depositor myself. They took the $10,000 and lend it out to someone else. They paid you the $100. They got $1,000 in. So they made $900 in this. That's 900%. Yeah. It's actually probably even more pronounced when you consider the fractional banking system, right? Because so uh, you're absolutely you're, they're only really required to keep ten percent of your deposits in there, and they can lend out ninety percent. So that money yep. goes around, circulates to the next bank, and they can do the same thing. So, so it's actually probably quite a bit more. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and that is just a very, very basic one. As you mentioned so correctly, we're not even touching on fractional reserve banking here. And that's where actually the majority of the inflation that we experience in the marketplace happens. So back to your question about how we work with clients. So what we try and do is uh, we do a holistic approach. We see if there's a basic foundation to build a wealth plan on. And the reason why I explain this is actually one of the, the foundational blocks that we look into is to look at structuring an infinite banking foundation for them. With the infinite banking concept, we actually use dividend paying whole life insurance with mutual insurance companies. And I know there might be a couple of jaws dropping when I just mentioned that product. You're in luck because we've actually been talking about it quite a bit on this show recently. Fantastic. Yeah, because I actually, I've been talking to people about this since several shows ago, somebody came on the show and described it and I got so intrigued. Now, I'm not in the business of selling insurance, but I am a a guy who likes to learn a lot before I do something and put a lot of money into something. So I actually got an insurance producer's license. So yes, we have talked about it, but please give us, uh, it, it always helps to give a little bit of review on the concept and tell us what you like about it. Yeah. So from that perspective is we look at a safe, secure, predictable vehicle for them. And that also allows us to implement these principles of the banking system that I spoke about. So we implement and execute this because on the one side, 
obviously there's guarantees. There's, there's a guarantee of the money that you put in a return on that. There's also an access to dividends as the shareholder of a mutual insurance company. The policyholders are the shareholders in the company. You get access to dividends. These companies have paid them for a hundred years consecutively. And even throughout the last financial crisis, which was a pretty good one, these companies and the carriers that I use didn't bat an eyelid. Yep. They continue to pay dividends out. They're extremely well capitalized. And back to your conversation that you touched on the Dodd-Frank Act, where there are bail-in provisions where depositors, uh, uh, funds, and funds from the FDIC can be used to recapitalize the banks. Institutional risk is one of our biggest risks out there. Wealthy families know this. That's why the vast majority of their wealth is warehoused in institutions that have been around since the mid-1800s and are extremely well capitalized. The growth inside of this is obviously tax-free. And back to the other principle, the wealth destroyer, wealthy families know how to limit and reduce the impact of taxes and also the uh, limit and reduce the impact of taxes when they transfer money to the next generation. This vehicle really, truly allows us to do that as well. On the lending side, which is a separate transaction, you get to actually leverage the amount of money that you've captured in this account on the one side and your deposit side and use it as collateral for a, pol a policy loan from the insurance institution, their general account. So it's two separate transactions and then employ that to invest in other cash flowing businesses and real estate. So this is really a, a very solid vehicle for us to structure and build a solid foundation on. I always say to people too that this is the vehicle that's going to bring predictability and security in your financial life. And this is your basis. This is not the end all and the be all. This is the solid concrete block that we're building it on. And then on top of that, we look at other more secure investors. Private lending is a very, very big favorite of ours to look at private lending opportunities within real estate where some of these private lending loans is backed by and collateralized by solid real estate properties. So we also do a lot of screening on our partners and the partnerships that we do have, because again, institutional risk is the most important or the biggest one that we're going to face. And on top of that, I would say to clump it, when we look at the wealth pyramid, just a layer on top of that, life settlements is a favorite investment of ours that we look at because it's guaranteed money and it's not tied to any market volatility. So there's no correlation between that investment and any of the markets or the economy. How about and, uh, uh, in terms of inflation? Because a lot of things you mentioned right now, I'm a big fan of all of them. And we've what? actually even talked about life settlements on this show too. So when we talk about the things that you're at right now, everything so far is that some sort of fixed interest, you know, whether they be loans, um, notes that you're putting on real estate, whether they be the uh, interest rates from the uh, insurance policy or even life settlements. How do you get to hedge against inflation in your paradigm? Yeah, that is where the cash flow on the next level is the cash flowing businesses and investments, such right. as real estate. Uh, multifamily syndication is a, is a favorite one of ours. Mm -hmm. There's some turnkey real estate opportunities. But yeah, so once you have your f solid financial foundation set up, you have some predictable and fixed in investments, such as you just pointed out. The layer on top of that in the pyramid is the cash flow businesses and the investments in, in real estate. So we also look at strategies. We have a partner that teaches how to cash flow gold and silver. 
uh, strategies and investments. How using does that paper work? With, I'm curious about that. Yeah, it's some option, very conservative option strategies using the paper of the gold and silver on top of your actual physical precious metal holding. So instead of uh, sitting it there, there are some very conservative strategies that allows you for cash flow. Stock market cash flow is also a big one here where covered calls, a lot of my clients would try covered calls with other partners. So that's something that they're interested in. The next level becomes, you know, now that we're right at the top of the pyramid, that becomes the more riskier investments where we feel that this is your swing for the fences segment, where this is money that you feel comfortable putting at risk and where you could lose the majority of that or everything and you would still be okay because you have your solid financial foundation set up and then you have cash flow coming in through cash flow businesses and cash flow investments. The scary thing here is most people, and I would actually put qualified retirement plans right there. That's where I would put that in our wealth pyramid because that should truly just be money that you would be okay with parting. As unfortunately, a lot of people found out in the last financial crisis, this could happen where 50% or more of the value of those plans right there could be lost. So, you know, I think from a general approach is, you know, I know that there are people that are looking at ETFs and they invest in mutual funds and there's certain things that they feel comfortable with and they like it. And I can appreciate that. And I would say if that's where your interest and focus is, absolutely, that's fantastic. You know, go for it. But we need to have all these other things in place before we can actually swing for the fences with those and put that portion of capital in our overall wealth plan at risk. I think you're being uh, very generous when you suggest that that's swinging for the fences. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you have, dude, you quite honestly, when so I look at retirement funds and stocks, bonds and mutual funds, I don't know that anybody who's ever gotten, you know, filthy rich off of that. I mean, the, the goal for the most part is wealth preservation. But the point I think you're trying to make is that those are not funds that you would count on towards retirement. So maybe you have them, but maybe you invest uh, your self-directed IRA into a gold mine or something like that or and so on and so forth, right? But what other examples would you have for swinging for the fences? Yeah, this is where there's a lot of shorts. I know that there are some guys doing market shorts right now. They look at markets that are at all-time highs. So there could be options trading to short markets. And you just pointed out mining stocks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I would not want my retirement spending sure. on that. And that's another thing, too, about we spoke about in this conversation about myths and about a different mindset. I think the retirement thing is also something that was sold to us hook, line, and sinker. Because truly, if you look at it, and I think people use this to justify being in a situation or doing something that they're not passionate about or enjoying doing every day, thinking, oh, well, you know, I'll just do this for 30 years and then I'll retire from this and then I can do what what I want to do. How about retiring to something that you want to do every day and enjoy. You know, I know clients, they're employed, they're W-2s, they love what they're doing, they're passionate about the, the industry that they're in, and that's fantastic. But I know also that 
they're never going to truly just sit on a beach or drink cocktails yeah. or play golf. There, there's something for them to retire to. There'll be a consulting part of that business. There'll be investments that they'll manage, like their real estate portfolio or other investments. So they're really building something while they're pursuing their passion, which is their W-2 job, for them to retire to instead of retiring from something. So, you know, and we'd like to keep active. I will always continue to write and talk and so forth because it's just something that I'm passionate about. And I believe everybody has a special gift. Everybody has a unique way of looking at things in the world to share with others. So why not do that even in your golden years and the quote unquote part that is supposedly this retirement part, right? Right. I mean, the irony of it, and we talked about, I think a little bit before was that everybody I know who really, really wants to retire and play golf, they're going to end up waiting a very long time to do that. And the people that I know who are just loving what they want to do or loving what they do now, rather, a lot of them could retire and play golf right now. So it's the irony of it all. I mean, it goes back to, you know, doing what it is that you love. And maybe there's some kind of underlying message there. If you're not passionate about what you do, you may not be as successful doing it. But I think you have a book that you're working on or may, I don't know if I don't think it's out yet, but it's called Money Masters, Six Pillars of Wealth Blueprint. What's that all about? Yeah, so this is an ebook that I'm working on that will be published and up on my website pretty soon. But I just looked at, you know, the blueprint because as a guy coming from a sports background, what I did when I played representative rugby is I always studied the best players in my position and just obsessively cut down tape, look at routes. I mean, fitness, nutrition, all these things. So I try to do the same thing and it's a lifetime <laughs> lifetime commitment and dedication to just studying what the wealthiest families are doing. They're changing strategies as well, but there's six principles that I came up with. I kind of condensed into a blueprint, which a lot of these families do. So the first thing obviously is the mindset. This is not a surprise to anybody that's out there. You've made a decision to build and create wealth and legacy wealth for your family. It's a very long-term range and view, not just you know the next quarter. The mindset of abundance and collaborating with people rather than just competing with everybody out there. And wealthy families, they know the secret to building and creating massive amounts of wealth is to produce as much value for others as humanly possible. And that value comes back in many different currencies back within their own lives. The second one is they also have a vision and a plan. It's fantastic to make a decision and say that I want to create and build this massive wealth. But what's the plan? You know, what's your vision for your life, your family? And I think start with the vision of what what a life you would like to live and then create a wealth plan uh, around that instead of trying to just focus on massive amount of money and wealth. And now you don't have the life that you desire or envisioned with pertaining to your relationships with your family and so forth, and your health especially. That's two things that go with a lot of very, very high earners quickly is their health and their relationship. So, and in the plan, what is your needs? Also realize, and it ties into a little bit of mindset, but realize that you are the number one asset that you have. That's it. <laughs> Don't look for anything else. You're the number one asset that you have. So you always have to redevelop, you know, do a little R&D, as I would say, on yourself. What skill sets can I improve? What skill sets can I learn to provide value for others? You know, we can reach millions of people now across the globe. How can I reach them? How can I reach them faster? Because speed is always also the key. The other one, too, is network and team. Obviously, the importance of team 
the wealthy families know that, you know, this is also not new information to us, but how to build that team, how to build a high performance team, how to learn leadership, how to know that you're the leader of that team and you're determining the direction that you're going on because you're the captain of your team and your life to nail down that plan that you envision and the vision for your life. Your network is so important. As your listeners will know, your network is going to equal your net worth in the end. I write a little bit about how to basically get into networks. A lot of people go into networks thinking what they can get from it, right? And that's a scarcity mentality again. Very, very wealthy families know that when they enter a network, they try and provide so much value for others in that network first before asking anything back in return. The next one is the wealth capture strategies and systems that we just spoke about. There's a ton of money that flows through our financial life every single year. How do we trap and capture some of this? You know, there's two partners of mine. They have a real estate portfolio. It's increasing every year, but they're paying about $100,000 in, in property taxes. They found a way through infinite banking that we discussed earlier to trap that $100,000 within their own economy. These are two very young guys in their early 30s. In 35 years, and their real estate portfolio is going to keep on growing, but just using $100,000, that's $3.5 million that would have flown through their life without being captured, leveraged, and employed to expand their wealth and build more wealth for them. So wealthy families know this. Family offices use these strategies across the country. The Rockefeller family office has a blueprint utilizing permanent life insurance products to employ certain of these strategies too. And that ties into the next point too, implementing and executing these strategies. You're putting together the team, your vision, your plan that you have, and executing high-level strategies in the asset classes that you are passionate about. You know, take real estate, for example. Robert K. Saki talks about you can invest like a rich person, a middle class, and a poor person. So look at the strategies that you employ, high-level strategies that this team of yours that you've built in your network helps to execute you. And then the last one I have is giving back and giving. You know, don't wait to start giving. Everyone can give immediately, whether it's a small amount and so forth. These families know the power of giving back. That's why you go to the big cities all across the world, whether it's Cape Town in South Africa, whether it's New York City, whether it's London, whether it's Hong Kong or Singapore, regardless of where you are. The wealthiest families, you'll see a name here and there on a building, something that they gave, that they gave back. A lot of wealthy investors are very generous as mentors. You know, people always try and speak to me and ask me, where can you find mentors? There are many people out there that, you know, when they started as a young investor on their journey, there were other people that helped guide the way with the same mentality and mindset of abundance that helped them. So these very wealthy individuals and families love to give back. They love to educate and to teach. So this is a very, very, very big part of that blueprint. Good stuff, MC. So if we want to learn more about you, we've got obviously the Cashflow Ninja show that you can download on iTunes and Stitcher and just about everywhere else, right? How else can we get a hold of you? Yeah. So for your listeners, if they're interested in learning more about infinite banking, I'll make a book available to them. I'll, I'll ship it to them. It's Becoming Your Own Banker by Mr. Nelson Nash. Just reach out to me at info at cashflowninja.com and I'll mail you out a copy of that. 
My primary platform is cashflowninja.com. There's links on it and access to valhallawealth.com, which is my wealth management firm. If you're interested in any of the topics that we discussed or any of the concepts, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm very accessible, respond to all of my emails personally. So at info at cashflowninja.com and please uh, visit me at cashflowninja.com. MC Lobsher, thank you very much for being on the show today. Buck, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a fantastic experience. And thank you for your listeners for listening out there. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Hope you enjoyed that show, everyone. MC. Lobsher is a fantastic podcaster, a great guy. One of the great things about being a podcaster is I get to meet a lot of interesting people. And, you know, you hear a lot of people behind the, you know, on a lot of shows, et cetera. And one of the things that you don't get to do is kind of get to know these people until you're a podcaster yourself. And so that's been really fun. And it's been really interesting getting to know these different characters. And MC is, is just a really good guy. So hopefully you'll give his show a shot. That's a cash flow ninja. Now, of course, we started off the show with me talking about how, you know, our perspectives are maybe our religions or cultures or backgrounds, our parents, et cetera, affect our belief systems and ultimately how those belief systems can actually influence the way you view money. Just to go back and review for me, investing in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, et cetera, and handing my money over to a financial planner was completely foreign. It just didn't exist. And so I thought of that as risky, whereas, you know, a lot of people would think of that as the you know conventional wisdom. On the other hand, my dad was a real estate investor as long as I can remember, and it paid for everything in my life. And I, I grew up an affluent kid. So when it came time to invest my own money, Investing in real estate was the conservative thing. And I know that that's not the way most of you grew up. But I just challenge you to go back and think about your own background and why you believe the things you do about money, because I think that's part of the solution. If you haven't yet made a step in the direction of tangible cash flow investing. And that's it for me this week. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? 
No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. 